We're so glad that you've tuned in to our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Robert Bowman, and I'm a ministry resident here at Rolling Hills. In this series, we've been learning about some of the impactful conversations that Jesus had during his lifetime. In today's sermon, Pastor Nick focuses on Jesus' conversation with the leaders in Matthew 18 and how their lives influence the next generation. Now, here's Nick. Good morning. I'm glad that you're here, and I'm glad that we get to continue tracking together through what we're calling these life-changing conversations with Jesus. Um, And they really are. They're life-changing conversations when they happen several thousand years ago when skin on Jesus is living and breathing and walking around, recruiting disciples and leading masses of people and changing the way that they think and understand who God is. But they're also life-changing conversations for us today. Right where we're at, right how we understand faith and what it means to walk. A lot of you have have considered the word goat over the last few years. And it's literally, okay, I'm not talking about yoga, although I do know that people do that. Um, I'm literally talking about the acronym GOAT. It took me a really long time. In fact, um, Getchel, who's running our sound and stuff today, and I were at a restaurant in Germantown here in Nashville. Like, and we had been there multiple times before I realized that GOAT not only stood for greatest of all time, but that that restaurant was like inserting out into the universe that they in fact were the greatest of all time. Now, I think it's a good restaurant. Like it was really, I've never had anything bad there. Everything that I've liked, I would highly recommend to all of you, but it's a big, bold statement to say that you're the greatest of all time. Long before anybody was doing anything with the acronym GOAT, Susan and I were watching the early seasons of American Idol, maybe you were too, Kelly Clarkson, and yeah, some good people like Carrie Underwood, really good people, R- Ruben Stuttered, you know what I'm talking about. So at the end of one of those seasons, you know, they always, like the bigger American Idol got, the bigger their celebrity guests got, right? And I remember at the end of one episode in particular, Ryan Seacrest was getting ready to announce who the next recording artist that was going to take the American Idol stage to perform alongside some of the contestants. And he literally said these words, the greatest recording artist of all time, Miss Mary J. Blige. And I thought to myself in that moment, like, she's good. But can you really say the greatest recording? I mean, like, there's a whole, like, Michael Jack, Beyonce. Like, there's a lot of people out there. Can you really, Journey, can you say that she's the greatest of all time? I don't know. Then you've got the idea of Tom Brady. Maybe he's the greatest of all time. And then I'm going to have to look to make sure I pronounce this name correctly. Khabib Nurmagomedov. Like, people say that he's the greatest MMA fighter of all time. But can you really qualify that? Perhaps the greatest GOAT discussion that's going on in our day and generation is the battle between whether or not LeBron James or Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. I know this because one day I was sitting and getting my hair cut at the Green Hills Barber, and that was what was on ESPN. This whole group of people debating back and forth, is Michael Jordan the greatest of all time? Is LeBron James the greatest of all time? I don't know. I guess it depends on what you're using to qualify and quantify what it means to be the greatest of all time. Jesus overhears this argument that's happening in the book of Luke chapter 22 of his disciples. It's chronicled differently for us in Matthew chapter 18, which is where we're going to land and spend our time today. But he hears his disciples arguing over who is the greatest. Because even in the world of being a disciple, apparently there's this competitive nature among people that we want to be considered great, great, sometimes greater than we are. So what does it really mean to be the 
the greatest? Are you looking at stats? Are you looking at some sort of, is there an objective measurement for what would quantify someone to be the greatest at anything or everything? Or is it always just a subjective truth? Oh, the greatest to me is this. I just want to read for you. It's not going to pop up on your screens. It's, it's, not, it's not your notes. But I want to read Matthew chapter 18, starting with verse 1. You can follow along in your Bibles if you have them in front of you. We're going to pick back up with several of these verses along the way. But just, just listen to these words. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked. So in this version of the story, they actually come to him and ask the question, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of of heaven. And Jesus did what he tended to do in a lot of circumstances. He spoke and he acted in an illustration. He called a little child to him, like a kid running around through the crowd. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, here's these these words. Here's your object lesson, your visual image of the day. Look at this kid. I don't know how old the child was. I don't know if it was a little boy. I don't know if it was a little girl, but he called a child and said this, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, Benjamin Button, we're all going to age backwards today. Unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's not talking to them about the idea of like who's the greatest and who's not quite yet the greatest. He's talking about what it means to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, therefore, Whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. It's like a bonus. Like Jesus all the time giving people bonuses. Hey, Jesus, what's the, what's the first and greatest commandment? Oh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. Oh, and the second, I'll give you a bonus. It's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Hey, Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Let me tell you right now, this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And oh yeah, bonus, if you welcome one of these little children, you're really welcoming me. If anyone, oh, then it gets dramatic. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would better, better, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. There is the mafia alive and well in the New Testament. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Jesus, we, we understand these words today as being words from your mouth to your disciples' ears, helping them understand the answer to a, a big question they ask, but ultimately painting a picture for them of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And, and what we want to dissect and understand today, God, is how this conversation is played out with us today. And so would you make these words alive for us? Would you make these words true for us? Would you challenge us right where we are to understand better who you are? It's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. You know, the fact that Jesus included children, like Jesus' inclusion of children in this moment, it, it offers to us a couple of things. At this day and age, in this particular time, children were a, a couple of things. They were a complete and total toss-up. They could be well-loved and taken care of as a part of the family, or just like today, they could be abused and neglected and not loved. You know, you know that happens in our world. It, it's real right where we are. 
You know, back then it was completely up to the Roman father as to whether or not his child lived or would be put to death. But in Jewish culture, this oppressed little group of Jews in their community, they always understood that children were of value. It dated all the way back to Abraham and Sarah who longed to have a child of their own. This idea of children being a blessing, this idea of Psalm chapter 127 verse 3, children are a heritage from the Lord. They're an offspring as a reward from the Lord. Like this understanding of kids being a blessing in the life of the family that was uniquely Jewish, that dates all the way back. And yet you still have disciples in this moment who offer us a picture of kids being dismissed or ignored. If you go to the book of Mark chapter 10, you've got this whole picture that's painted. And if you grew up in the life of the church like I did, if you grew up attending church on Sunday mornings like I did, and you were part of a children's ministry like I was, and you went to old school second floor Sunday school halls like I did, if you went to church, I promise you, between 1960 and 1990, you had a painting on the wall of your children's ministry at your church with like, like, like raven-haired, blue-eyed, Harlequin romance novel picture cover Jesus holding a one little child in his lap and being gathered by all the other little beautiful children in the community. And at the bottom of it, it was like Mark 10, 14. It was King James only. Suffer the little children come unto me for such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven. Bring the little children on. And in that moment, people are bringing their kids to come see Jesus, and they they want him to place his hands on their head and to bless them. And that was a picture of what was going on way back in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis chapter 47, because there was this guy named Jacob. He was renamed Israel, and he had a whole bunch of sons, and one of them was carted off to Egypt, and his name was Joseph. And he was the reconciling factor to make the people actually survive this great worldwide famine. And the people went down to Egypt, and he had all these brothers. And instead of Jacob in his old age about to die laying his hand on Joseph, he laid it on his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he blessed both of them. So people bringing their kids to Jesus was a picture of, hey, we think you're somebody. And if anybody's going to bless our kids, we want it to be you. So this picture of Jesus bringing a kid into their midst, kids that they had previously wanted to dismiss, this, this child being put right among them offers us a couple of different really important things. The first is this, it gives us an explanation. It explains to us how we are to approach faith ourselves. It says it in verse three, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. When he gave them a child as an example, it was telling them how they were supposed to approach faith. He's not telling them to be childish. He's telling them to be childlike. It's not permission to not grow up in spiritual maturity. In fact, Scripture goes on to say a whole lot about what it means to grow up and become spiritually mature. This is all about how you approach God. Many in our culture might just assume that when Jesus calls up a kid in front of him and says, oh, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must become like this little child that he was talking about innocence. How many of us want to believe that, oh, children are so innocent? Jesus wasn't telling them to be innocent. The Jewish people in that day, they understood like we should understood today that right from the very beginning, we're all conceived in sin. We're dirty, rotten sinners from the day we're born and we're always entering into this world completely separate. He wasn't telling them that they needed to be innocent. He was telling them that they needed to be dependent because the marked characteristic of a child in this moment was total dependence. The marked characteristic of a child in this moment was you can't take care of yourself. 
And so Jesus tells them, hey, I want you to be dependent on me. You who are my disciples, you who are my followers, and especially those Pharisees out there who are telling you that it's all about your works in life, that you somehow earn the kingdom of heaven on your own. No, you're a little kid. You're in need of a father. You're in need of help. You're in need of instruction. You're in need of love. He brings a kid in to paint a picture of how we're supposed to approach the kingdom of God. Desperate, low, in need. He gave us an explanation about how we're supposed to approach faith. But then he also gives them an indication of how they're supposed to impress that faith on others. He goes on to say in verse 5, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Children were, were, were weak and in need particularly in that cultural understanding. If you understand any of the words of Jesus, what he said in Matthew chapter 25, when you, when you welcome someone, you're really welcoming Jesus. When you serve someone, you're really serving Jesus. He says to his people, when you, when you act like me, the best way to share Jesus is to be like Jesus. Welcome in the NIV is... is the word receive in the New American Standard version of the Bible. And it, it literally means this idea of like, oh, I got it. When, when you receive understanding, when you receive knowledge, you welcoming Jesus is like, oh, I get it now. He's all I need. You welcoming Jesus is like, oh, aha, I understand. I, I receive the gospel. Tish Harrison Warren a fun name that you may not forget. Um, she's a, a scholar and a theologian, and she wrote part of a book that I read recently called Uncommon Ground, and she's talking about what it means to be a herald as a Christian. And I wrote down this whole section in one of my journals, and she goes on to say that we can't simply speak uncomfortable truths in order to be right or to worse, be primarily pleased with ourselves. Our task is in part to communicate to other people a vision of human flourishing, the way to know God that makes people long for it to be true. And then she says, this does not mean that our readers or our listeners or even our own children will accept the message. But if they reject it, we want them to reject something that we convey accurately. How often is the world's great rejection of Jesus actually them rejecting the really bad picture that you and I painted of him? How often is the world's great rejection of Jesus not, not actually a rejection of Jesus at all, but just a rejection of who we made him out to be? by not living our lives like him. He's looking at his disciples. He brings a kid among them. He says, hey, this is how you're supposed to approach faith. And this is how you're supposed to impress faith. Just follow me like a kid follows his dad. Desire to be like me, like a little boy mimics his father. This is how you impress faith. It's in your notes this morning. The story of God's people right back from the very beginning all the way back to the law and the book of Deuteronomy, the story of God's people 
always understood the value of including the next generation. In chapter 5 of the book of Deuteronomy, verse 29, it says, Oh, that the God's talking about, oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and to keep my commands always, just to walk in the way that I set before them, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. There was always a plan to include the next generation, so much so that you, you get to this picture of God's word always articulating for us a plan for developing that next generation. Just one chapter over in Deuteronomy chapter six, it says these words, it's called the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter six, starting with verse, it says, listen, hear, O Israel. That word here is Shema. It's the most important piece of scripture in the Old Testament Hebrew words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commands I am giving you today are to be on your hearts. This is the most important confession of faith that any Jewish believer would ever make. There's this idea in Jewish scripture called a parashat or a parsha, and it means the daily portion. The, the, the part of scripture that you read and that you take in. And what you understand is that every single part of this word is nourishment for us. One of my heroes in ministry, his name is Reggie Joyner. He says, all scripture is equally inspired by God. It is. Every single word in this book equally inspired by God. But not every single word in this book is equally important for us. That's why you get verses that are all about the plan of salvation, and you get verses all about the plan of procreation. So-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so. Literally, the lineage, it's important for us to know, but not so much as for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I mean, there are pieces of scripture that matter a little bit more, so we take in these portions. This Shema, it mattered the most, and then he gives them a plan. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Here's your plan of action. Make sure you pass faith on to the next generation. I can hardly find a series, two to three series of passages of Scripture in on a Sunday morning where I don't find my way back to these words that are so important for us because there was always a plan. That faith would literally go beyond us. This, this conversation with Jesus and his disciples isn't to the next generation, but it's about the next generation. All of these words, Deuteronomy chapter 6, they were for all of Israel. God didn't look at his people, two million strong, marching out of slavery in Egypt and say to them, Okay, hear, O Israel, all of you as a collected community. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love him with everything that you have. These words today that I give you are to be on your hearts. Now, everybody over here, I want you to go about your business, but mommies and daddies, I want you to dial in and listen to me. Impress these on your children. No, there was no aside. He didn't all of a sudden turn off everybody that didn't have children that day and look squarely at the people who did have children that day and say, impress them on your children. No, he gives that command to the whole faith community. So this idea of bringing a child among the disciples is impressed to the whole faith community. Every single one of you who is going to approach faith in God better do it from a position of total lowliness and total dependence. And every single one of you bears the responsibility of making sure that this faith that you have in God is passed on to the generation that comes after you, whether you procreated them or not. That means that these three little children that are fortunate enough to call me father, 
y'all have got some work to do. Because I'm not the sole proprietor of faith in those three little Allen children. You guys are. A lot of y'all signed a partnership covenant to be a part of Rolling Hills Community Church, and when you did, you made a promise to me that you would help. That, 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 that you would know them and that you would do whatever was in your power, whatever it was according to your gifts and your abilities distributed to you by the power of the Holy Spirit to help me raise those kids, all of our kids, to know and to follow Jesus. The, the whole faith community is to impress upon the next generation what it means to follow Jesus. And if you follow this journey from the wilderness, slavery, wilderness, promised land, when the people under the leadership of Joshua got to enter in and they, they, they saw for the first time the, the fruits of everything that God had promised to them, the land that was flowing with milk and honey, just one book of the Bible over in Judges chapter 2, you get what I would call the scariest verse in all of Scripture. It says this in Judges chapter 2 verse 10, after that whole generation Joshua, Caleb, all those heroes, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, that's a nice way of saying they died. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They didn't know God. They couldn't claim his promises. They didn't know his words. Of all the perceived dangers in this world, not knowing God is the most severe, but often the very least attended. Last week we had buckets in our auditorium when you guys came in and when you left and we announced, hey, this is the week to like drop all your pocket change. I saw people literally like leave that service and run to their car and empty out their cup holders and bring it back and pour it in and the, the, the clanking of change. And our, it was so, I was so excited when I looked after first service and after second service because we're a small congregation. And I was like, wow, look, people are so generous. Well, this week, all of that change was combined with that from our Franklin campus and our Nolansville campus. And we get to announce, do y'all want to know where it went? Check it out. Steve, so glad to talk to you today, man. Why don't you tell us how Fort 13 Strong even came to be? Yeah, so uh, we are seven years old. We're starting our seventh year right now. Um, I, I was um, volunteering at a program the YMCA was running, and the YMCA decided that they were going to reorganize and shut that program down. And um, as I was trying to figure out what that meant for me, I kind of felt God pushing me, saying, keep that ministry going. Uh, and so after trying to ignore that calling for a while, uh, God's voice just got louder and louder in my head. And I figured the only way I could make it go away was to answer him. And so we uh, reached out and started 413 Strong, and uh, it's the best thing that we've done. That's awesome. Tell the people that may not have heard 413 Strong before, what is 413 Strong? So we're a program uh, for men, and we are looking to give men growing up in the inner city of Nashville an opportunity that they might not have otherwise had. So we're a residential program. Uh, the men that come to us have to try out for a spot. Once we accept them, they move in, they live on our campus. And for the next six to eight months, we're gonna pour into them and help them uh, grow uh, spiritually, uh, physically, and um, vocationally. We're gonna teach them construction skills, help them get a job in the construction industry, teach them what it means to be dependable, um, and kind of basically help them get on a path that will lead them to future success. 
How can people be involved with what's going on at 413 Strong? We've got a number of ways for people to plug in. Um, on Monday nights, we do a men's Bible study. Uh, we're really kind of exploring what does the Bible say about being a man. And so this is a great opportunity for men to come and just be a part of what we're doing, to be mentors, to lead these guys. On Thursday nights, we do fellowship dinner. Um, so if you have a small group that would like to serve together, that's a perfect opportunity. Bring dinner, eat with the guys, uh, just hang out and get to know them. And Friday night's game night. Um, so another opportunity for small groups to serve. Um, and if you think you're good at games, you need to come play these guys because everything for them is a competition. It's a lot of fun. That's awesome, man. Well, at Rolling Hills, we love local missions. 413 is one of our primary local missions partners, and we want to do everything we can to continue to support you, send you people, send you resources. Um, and as part of that, we are want to surprise you today that 413 Strong is the recipient of our, our Change for Change offering. So I want to give you this right now, oh, just to love on you guys. And hopefully from this, you know that we 100% support you, 100% behind you, and want to help you build the kingdom in what you're doing. That's awesome. Thank you very much. And thank you, Rolling Hills. <laughs> just over $7,000 um, towards that ministry, raised in one day because you guys emptied jars and the bottoms of your purses and um, cup holders in your car, and you brought um, a, a loving offering last week. I love what's happening at 413 um, and the ministry that's going on with these guys. And the more I'm with them and the more that I spend time there, the more I realize that there are people in this world, um, like them and other people that you know, they've lived some dangerous lives. They've walked in, in really difficult circumstances. And we can look all over the world um, and we can encounter just the most harsh cruelty of any situation. And still, even still, no matter what danger, no matter what difficulty, no matter what challenge the world presents to any of us, the greatest danger, the greatest challenge, the greatest cruelty in this life is that someone would not get to know and follow Jesus. Several years ago, I took my oldest, it's actually two years ago now, I think, took my oldest on her very first international mission trip. We went to Brazil with Justice and Mercy International. You guys hear us talk about and celebrate the work of JMI all of the time. And it's really incredible what you do. You literally board this big sleeping boat that's got places to sleep and hammocks everywhere and you're meeting and you're eating. It's like a barge and it travels up and down the river. But when you need to skirt off to the sides and get actually into the villages and, and dock in a place where you can go and do ministry, you take the fast boat. So this slow-moving sleeping boat called the Discovery goes up and down the Amazon and you sleep all night and you go all that. But then you take the fast boat and we love the fast boat line because it goes fast. Why wouldn't you love the fast boat? And our jungle guide's name is Milton and he's literally the most incredible human being on the planet. You just can't, like he's the greatest of all time. You think you're good, LeBron? Nope, it's Milton in the jungle. There's nobody greater. I can't even imagine. And so he actually rides on top of the fast boat. And all week long, my oldest Lee Kate's like, Dad, can I ride up there next to Milton? Can I ride up there next to Milton? And finally, towards the end of the week, I was like, yeah, you can go sit up there on top of the fast boat beside. There's no seat belts. There's no handrails. And here she is riding on top of the fast boat, seated next to Milton. Can completely, and Mary Catherine, the director of JMI, is on the back of the boat. Nick, I need to hear you say it. JMI is not liable for anything that might happen while Lily Kate is riding on top of the fast boat. Yes, Mary Catherine, I hear you. You are not liable if my child falls off this boat because I knew that if my child started to fall off the boat Milton would go go gadget arms grab her and reel her back in and I think about this often 
You know, the absolute safest place that any of us could be is the middle of God's will for our lives, even when God's will for our life is the most dangerous place we've ever been. The safest place for any of us to be, even when it's the most dangerous place we've ever been, is the middle of God's will. We have a really warped view of protection in our culture. You know, every playground has fall zones and safety ratings. There's actually research studies being done over the last decade to say that playgrounds are too safe and that it would actually be better for our children physically and psychologically if we let them get hurt a little bit more often. Go figure, right? Like maybe we're a little bit too insulated. Maybe we're a little bit too protected and maybe ultimately that makes us too fearful. We view protection as this almighty, we view protection as the primary investment that a parent might make, right? Maybe the spiritual investment that we make is the very best protection. We we kind of view protection as, as just one of many and often the primary investments that we make, but what if the very best protection is the spiritual investment? If you skip on down in in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says in verse 12, he's talking about those little ones. He says, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, you've heard this story. He told it in Luke chapter 15 as one of many parables about somebody who got lost. And one of them wanders away. Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? Jesus is speaking about value. And in the context of calling us sheep, he's saying that we are his. And in the context of him being our shepherd, there is no better place to be than right under his care. This idea of the next generation is that you and I might be a people, a people of God, who approach faith in God out of our total desperate need for childlike dependence on him, but then people who also understand that we have a role to play to make sure every other human on the planet gets an opportunity to realize, recognize their need for forgiveness, their total situation of desperation without God, and to point him in the direction of Christ, the very best place that any of us could be is right where the shepherd leads. And woe to us if we don't go after any sheep that get lost along the way. The idea of who among us can be the greatest is really ultimately the idea that we need to consider what it means to be the closest. The closest to Jesus the closest to an attitude of childlike faith, but maybe even the closest to the child that was in the circle. I like the idea that at the very beginning of that passage, the disciples say, hey, Jesus, who is the greatest? And then in typical Jesus fashion, he brings a kid and puts the kid among them, right there with them. Hey, guys, you want to know who the greatest is? Focus your attention right there. Be like that and make sure you don't do anything that's going to separate that from me. The idea of being the greatest is ultimately always about being the closest. So let's talk about proximity. 
What's your closeness to Christ today? Right there, huddled up with the 99, trying to be first in line when the shepherd points you to the good grass. It's a good place to be. Or are you the one that wandered off a little bit? That, 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 that strayed away? Or, or worse, have you been part of the fallen systems of this world? That's, that's pulling someone else in your direction instead of pointing them so squarely in his. The idea of being the greatest is being the closest. The closest to Jesus and the closest to the things that he values. Faith in his father and passing that on to the least of these and we're all the least of these. Passing it on to somebody else. It says, woe to you when you cause one of these little ones to stumble. That word stumble in, in the Greek language that was used in this passage of scripture, Jesus spoke it out loud, is the word skandalon. Sounds like scandal. And it literally means to, to trip. Obviously, you're, you're, you're making someone stumble. But it's ultimately a trap. It's the picture of a stick that's over a crate, and when the little animal comes in and knocks the stick, the crate falls down on top of them, and they're trapped. The idea of causing someone to stumble is to leave them trapped in their sin instead of freed by Jesus. We want to point people to freedom because we first experienced it and we're thankful for it and we can't help but tell others about it. Would you pray with me today? God, we thank you for the opportunity to be in this place and to gather together and to hear your words, to, to understand the, the goodness of who you are and what you've offered us in your son. And ultimately today, Jesus, we can't think of anything worth praying except that we might be a people who find you in faith and who live that out so well that it paints a beautiful picture of the sacrifice that you've made so that others might come to faith too. Father, my prayer is that we would be a congregation that's known and known well for the ways that we interact with the next generation, for preschool and children and student ministries, that kids would grow up being nurtured by the gospel and never get caught falling away from the plan that you have for them in life. That we might be a people who approach you in faith and who live it out so well that it impresses faith on others who come after us. Thank you, Jesus, for the opportunity to be in this place and to hear your words. Amen. Thanks for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, where you can find great podcasts like Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, RH Women's As You Go Podcast, and more. If you want to learn more about what's going on in the life of Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit our website at rollinghills.church. From there, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date on what's happening and on ways you can connect. We're thankful for you.